It's a short chapter, 15 verses, Isaiah chapter 47. It says, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy on the elderly. You laid your yoke very heavily and you said, I shall be a lady forever. So that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am and there's no one else besides me. That could be translated. I'm the only one who matters. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the great abundance of your enchantments, for you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else beside me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises and trouble shall fall upon you. And you will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what you shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. In the last chapter, we learned about the idols of Babylon. And in this chapter, we learn about their inevitable, certain judgment. Most of us are familiar with the word abuse. It's a prolific word in our culture and our society. It's a catch phrase that we use. You may be familiar with the word abuse, but do you know what the origin of the word is? It comes from two words, abnormal and use. It's a contraction. Abnormal 
use. We speak about child abuse. We speak about spousal abuse. We speak about physical abuse, religious abuse, drug abuse. We have cultural abuse. That is, the weak are taken advantage of in order to strengthen the strong. But fundamentally, the word means to take something and use it in a way that it was never intended. And the Bible condemns oppressive behavior, whether the source of the oppression is government or people groups or husbands or wives or children or churches. Oppression includes degrading people, crushing them, beating them down, disheartening. It is the causing of distress for them. Abuse is harassing them, hounding them, persecuting them, whether through physical violence or sexual assault. It's tormenting, torturing, enslaving. But one thing that we rarely use to apply to the word abuse is ignoring, not paying attention. But neglect probably forms the single most powerful way that we oppress and abuse one another. It isn't necessarily what we say or, or, or what we do. It's what we fail to say. It's what we fail to do. William Wilberforce, that great champion who fought to destroy slavery in his own lifetime, wrote, In the Scripture, no national crime is condemned so frequently and few so strongly as oppression and cruelty and not using our best endeavors to deliver our fellow creatures from them. God hates the abuse and mistreatment of people for the most simple, basic, and fundamental reason. Because God cares for and loves people. God hates and despises our sin, but he loves and he expects us to love each other. And to extend to each other, not just simple basic courtesies, not just simple dignities, not even just simple courtesy and respect, but to actually love one another. Remember what the Bible says? You should love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And remember, there was a famous lawyer in the New Testament who said, who is my neighbor to Jesus? Not because he really cared about the definition, but because he wanted to figure out a way to weasel out of his responsibility. And remember what love is. It's the determination to do what's right. All forms of cruel, inhumane, mistreatment, oppression is despised by God. Now remember, since we began this section of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, we've talked about the power of God to deliver us, to set us free by God's salvation and, and greatness in chapter 40, by God's power to control human history and specific behavior of individuals in chapter 41. We're set free by God's servant, the perfect servant, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. In chapter 42, we're set free by Christ's redemption. Chapter 43, we, we're set free by the only living and true 
true God in chapter 44. We're set free by God's power to work through people and nations in chapter 45. We're set free by repentance, by turning from our sin, by turning from empty, foolish idols in chapter 46. And now we are set free. We are liberated by God's commitment that he will judge the oppressor. In this case, the oppressor is Babylon. It is his way of saying, in order for me to let you go, I must judge the person, the nation that has captured you and oppressed you and crushed you. In order for God's plan and purpose to take place, he must do this. And now we understand that we also get to be set free. From the oppressor. You see, typically, one of two things takes place in the life of an individual. They are oppressed. They are abused. And then they become oppressors and abusers. If this chapter teaches us anything at all, it teaches us this. God will judge our abusers. But God will also judge us if we take it upon ourselves that we think that we have the freedom to abuse others. This prophecy is given 150 years before Judah and Jerusalem are ever taken into captivity. And remember, I've told you this almost regularly. God determined in advance to set his people free. God has determined in advance to liberate us, to set us free from the yoke of oppression and bondage that is most certainly the primary yoke of bondage that we as Christians experience. And that's the problem of sin. Jesus Christ comes and he dies on the cross so that we could experience power over sin. We can divide the chapter into four sections. God's vengeance and Babylon's defeat in the first five verses. God's provocation, Babylon's direct disobedience in verses 6 through 8. God's judgment and then Babylon's dramatic end in verses 9 through 11. God's triumph, particularly over Babylon's demonic religion and how that demonic religion, astrology, The occult, psychic phenomenon, magical thinking will be unable to help them. We begin with Babylon's defeat. Look again in verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. The chapter is addressed to Babylon. And when Babylon is referred to as the virgin daughter, it isn't an explanation of her purity, but rather of her youth. Remember, Babylon is a brand new nation. It is a world nation. It is it is arising out of the dust of the Middle East to become the dominant priority nation. God will raise Babylon up to strike against the Assyrians. They will come. They will capture Jerusalem. He says, sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. 
the cruel persecutor of God's people is doomed to fail. Why? Because the virgin daughter of Babylon is pictured like a pampered, spoiled child. This country that has never experienced hardship, never experienced pain, never experienced abuse, she was the inflictor of pain, the inflictor of oppression, the inflictor of abuse. But the prophecy that Isaiah gives is you're going to suffer shock. You're going to suffer exile. You're going to suffer slavery yourself. You see, Babylon was a nation that was used to inflicting shock, stealing people and enslaving them. But all of that was going to come to an end. This is a picture not only of the doom of Babylon, but really the doom of the entire world. Remember what, the, what Babylon is in, in, the, in the Bible. It becomes a type and a picture of the religious world system and the governmental system in the world that stands in opposition to God and the things of God. And in the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 18, the destruction and annihilation of a future world that stands in opposition to God is pronounced. And in verse 2, look what it says. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. In verse 3, your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance. If you, if you pause at verse 2 where it says, take the millstones and grind meal, remember, they had slaves and they had donkeys that would have a gigantic stone. They would attach the donkey or the slave to the millstone that they would walk in a circle to grind their grain. But guess what? Now the children of Babylon are doing the most menial tasks because no longer are they the slave owner, but now they're the slave. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. She will be humbled and humiliated and degraded. The Babylonians built a massive civilization with gigantic bridge structures. But the technology and the culture is going to be taken away and they're going to wade through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. This is the Lord's way of saying, I, even though I used you as the rod to chastise my own people, even though I used you to punish the Assyrians and I used you to punish the children of, of Judah and Jerusalem for their wickedness, for their rebellion and their disobedience. But like a mother will take a wooden spoon and spank her child. God will take Babylon and throw her into the fire. And he's not open to negotiations. Here's the idea. I'm going to judge you as an oppressor. Because of the violation of all of the human rights. And I'm not going to be dissuaded from it. Because remember, remember God's plan and purpose. He will liberate. He will liberate. He will liberate Judah and Jerusalem. And in order to do that, Babylon has to be judged. And look what it says. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name. 
Remember, the Babylonians are living in a culture and a society where Marduk and Nebo and the pantheon of Babylonian gods, they gather together, they look at the sky, they look at all of the circumstances that are around them, thinking that that's what's going to tell them the truth about their life. But the one and true and only God is the Redeemer God of Israel and Judah. Well, remember what a redeemer is. It's the person who buys you out of the marketplace. Who takes you and pays for you and owns you. And so, he is the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. It was the Lord's way of saying Oh, so you're the most powerful, the most influential, the greatest empire in the world. But guess what? You're going to go into darkness. You shall no longer be called the lady of the kingdoms. You know what he's saying? Your reign's going to come to an end. Civilizations come and civilizations go. They might last 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. God raises them up and then they go back down. And look what it says in verse 6. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You thought you captured them. You thought you took them. You thought that you could do with them whatever you wanted, but it's not true. I have a plan and I have a purpose. I allowed it to happen. Look what it says. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily. Remember, a yoke is an instrument of oppression and slavery. You place it on the, on the, on the neck of an animal in order to get it to work for you. The Lord would punish Babylon for her inexcusable oppression and persecution. And the Lord mentions the fact that God was angry with his people. But listen carefully. Even though God was angry with his his people, even though he allows them to go into slavery and bondage, he never, ever says that the Babylonians have any excuse whatsoever for their wickedness and their mistreatment of his people. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because some of you might be tempted to suggest that your family, your friends, your brothers and your sisters who are suffering from sexual abuse, from alcohol abuse, from drug abuse, from all of these things, you might be thinking, serves them right. But guess what? God knows. God understands the heart and the circumstance of every single individual. Have you noticed how we always want judgment for somebody else but mercy for ourselves? We want mercy for ourselves because we see, we understand what's going on in our life and in our heart. We understand what's going on that would cause us to look at things we have no business looking at or being involved in things that we have no business being involved in. And so we can come up with all of the excuses that we need in order to try and explain our misbehavior and our sinful behavior. But when it appears on another person, it looks like we need to call for immediate judgment. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. The Lord God would hold the people of Babylon responsible for their own behavior. 
They oppress the elderly. And by the way, respect for elders is usually a cultural universalism. In whatever culture and society you go to, around the planet, no matter how primitive or culturally sophisticated, there's something inside of people's hearts that understand that you should respect your elders. Except for here. Except for here. Where the elder becomes disposable, ignored, neglected. And look what it says in verse 7. And you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. No one will ever hurt me. No one will ever take advantage of me. No one will ever abuse me. Oh, but guess what? You won't be a lady forever. There will come a time when she will be stripped and she will be sexually violated and she will be humiliated and she will become the prisoner instead of the princess. That's what Isaiah is saying. In verse 8 it says, Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Look look what he's saying. The call of Babylon, when he says, therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures. In other words, he says, I want you to listen. Those of you who are preoccupied with satisfying yourself, I just want to eat. I just want to drink. I just want to satisfy myself physically, mentally, emotionally. Those who dwell securely, I'm financially secure. Who say in your heart, I am and there's no one else besides me. The people who whisper inside of their own voice, their own inner dialogue. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. They spoke in their own hearts. Now, I want you to understand something. The call of Babylon doesn't begin with the armies of Cyrus. It doesn't begin, look around you. Don't you see the Medes and the Persians coming from the north? They're going to overwhelm you. They're going to take, they're going to take you over. But that's not where it begins. The, 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 the beginning of the end begins in an internal conversation that takes place in their heart. And by the way, that's the beginning of the end for every single person who says inside of their heart, there is no God. I don't need God. I don't want God. The only person who matters in the entire universe is me. That's what they were saying. Listen carefully. They spoke in their own hearts. And God heard every word. I can't hear what you're thinking, but God does. When you were coming over to church, you spoke, you said certain things, and then there were certain things that were left unsaid. Each day, both the oral arguments that you make, the verbal things that you say, they're heard by God, but guess what? Every single, quiet, private, unannounced conversation that you have inside of you is known by God. Remember in chapter 46, verse 9, I want to draw something to your attention from the last chapter. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like 
me. Here, the proud mistress of Babylon declares her godlike autonomy. I am. There's no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. You're never going to abuse me. You're never going to oppress me. You're never going to take advantage of me. That's the heart of blasphemy. That's the center. That's the core of human failure. And that's the eventual, inevitable downfall of each person who makes the choice that I don't want God and I don't need God. Abuse, and and, and this is the key, abuse, oppression, begins with pride. Do you know when you're most likely to be abused? When someone in their heart elevates themselves to the position of God and they decide that they can do whatever they want with your life. But you know what happens? Pride distorts reality. Pride causes people to say things and do things that they wouldn't normally do. And by the way, we become capable of any evil when we lose sight of our wickedness and our own sinfulness. I don't have a problem. I'm not wicked. I'm not a sinner. (laughs) Phil was talking about a conversation I had on the radio today with this lady who's a promoter of Urantia, which is a demonically inspired book. And in this demonically inspired book, what Urantia declares is that sin is a fiction. It's an illusion. It's a fabrication created by churches in order to get you to do what they want you to do. But nothing could be further from the truth. Sin is rebellion and disobedience against God. The human manifest in a, in a, in a A thing called the Humanist Manifesto, they wrote, quote, We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. What a lie! Your moral values do not derive from your human experience. Ethics are not autonomous and situational. We are attached to a true and a living God who reveals to us what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. And God says it's wrong to abuse and oppress people because he's your creator. You are made in the image of God. You have value. And worth. Remember what I said. Abuse. Abnormal use. You were created to have friendship and fellowship with God. You weren't created to be the toy of the devil. You weren't created to be the plaything of sin. Babylon's experience. Now listen carefully. Remember the Humanist Manifesto? Human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. That was the Babylonian creed. The Babylonian creed was they are the cultural, they are the scientific, they are the military, they are the leading economy in the world. Because we have the strongest military, because we have the strongest economy, because we have the most powerful army, and because we have the greatest resources, we can do whatever we want to whomever we want. 
We can enslave anyone. We can oppress anyone. We can capture them and we can do with them and they become our property. And so Isaiah lists indictments against Babylon. Number one, cruelty and mistreatment of God's people in verse six. Hey, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to bring you down because of your cruelty and mistreatment of, of the children of Israel. Yes, God used Babylon, like I said, to chastise the Assyrians. Yes, he used them to chastise his own people. But God wanted to arouse Israel, to stir them, to return to the true and the living God. But Babylon failed to exercise even the most fundamental, basic human rights. They showed no mercy. They enslaved the elderly who were forced into harsh labor, exposed their wicked Babylonian hearts. In recent conversations in Congress, talking about torture, John McCain, who happens to be a presidential candidate, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for five years, who was the object of torture. He was tortured by his Vietnamese captives. On the floor of Congress, he says, torture doesn't, Get us the information we need. Torture doesn't tell us about other people. It tells us about ourselves. You know, he's right. When you give yourself permission to abuse and oppress someone, you do it quite apart from the will and the word of God. And number two, pride, boasting, placing their security in the things of this world, the leaders and the people through their leadership, through their cultural excellence, through their ascendancy in the world. They thought that their civilization would last forever. The Babylonians felt that they were superior in every way, that their nation would always be the queen of the world, that they would always be the superpower over other superpowers. They never ever, listen carefully, they never imagined, they never imagined another culture or empire that would take them over. Remember, they're the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. They didn't think about or acknowledge the true and the living God. They didn't acknowledge the consequences of their own wicked, sinful, and immoral behavior. And you know what? If our culture continues its detachment from the true and the living God, the God of the Bible... If our culture decides because we are the most powerful, because we have the strongest military and the strongest economy, if we use our strength and our power as a fulcrum of oppression and humiliation, God is not mocked. Not just what a person sows, that will they also reap, but also a nation Paul, writing about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, said, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Do you have everything that you need? Praise God. Are you taken care of? Praise the Lord. Acknowledge the true and the living God. And number three, they lived a life of selfishness and carnality, quite apart from the true and the living God. In Babylonian theology, according to their worldview, the gods allowed them to indulge in every sensual and sexual pleasure. They were a pleasure-loving people. If you 
If I could transport you back in time and I could take you into the heart of the Babylonian city, you would love this place. Think about San Francisco and New Orleans and New York and wrap them all together. You can get the best food, the best entertainment. You can get the best of everything. You can satisfy whatever indulgence tickles your fancy. Centuries of worshiping false gods gave them the liberty to think, hey, we can do whatever we want. Remember, they're worshiping the stars. They're worshiping magic. They're worship- they try to manipulate the external in order to satisfy themselves. But they became weak and they became undisciplined and they became reckless and they became hardened in their heart against the true and the living God. See, you may not worship Marduk or Nebo. The temptation in our culture and society isn't to worship the fabrication of the ancient pantheon of gods. It's to worship false science. It's to worship wealth. It's to worship the economy. It's to worship power. It's to worship the government. And the Babylonians cultivated an attitude of superiority and pride and self-sufficiency and self-exaltation and Make no mistake about it. Self-deification. The sun rises on me. The sun sets on me. The world revolves around me. Remember verse 8? I am and there's none beside me. They felt that... Listen carefully. They felt like there was no one superior to them. That they were the greatest country on God's green earth. even God. Not even God was greater than them. The true and the living God. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The God who revealed himself to that little tiny country just to the west of them. In Judah. and Jerusalem. The God who promised a Messiah. <laughs> Think about that for just a moment. They were the greatest nation. Their armies were undefeated. They would never suffer like any other nation. Their women would never be taken advantage of. Their children would never be molested. No one could ever conquer them. They were in charge of their own lives. They were in charge of their own destiny. Sound familiar? Does this sound familiar to you? Remember in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, this is what the Lord Jesus says. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the Bible, the way up is the way down. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, it says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. And we see Babylon's dramatic end. Look at verse 9. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Babylon would fall in one single day. The Medes and the Persians would come from the north. The river 
would go down severely in the middle of the night. The Medo-Persian army would lift the, the iron gates that separated the sewage system in the Babylonian city. And they would literally invade the city. And in a single night, the whole country would fall. Couldn't happen here. Really? Two planes crash into two towers in New York. Fifteen billion dollars go up in one puff of smoke and it paralyzes an entire country. What do you suppose would happen if one nuclear device was exploded in New York? If one nuclear device was exploded in Denver, Colorado? If one nuclear device was was exploded in Los Angeles? A country that's already fragmented. A country that's already deeply divided. A country that seems to have lost its way. A country that lacks leadership. A country that refuses to attach itself to moral decency and biblical understanding. It says in verse 9, They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments for you have trusted in your wickedness you have said no one sees me your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you it says in verse 10 and you've said in your heart I am and there's no one else beside me listen carefully if you're not trusting in Christ's righteousness then you're trusting in your own wickedness And that's the complaint. You're trusting in your wickedness. That's what it says in verse 11. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. And trouble shall fall upon you. You shall not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. So when he says, because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the greatness of the abundance of your enchantments, They're being judged. Remember, they're looking for supernatural direction, but it isn't from the true and the living God. It shouldn't shock us and surprise us that we live in a world that certainly wants direction and it wants information from a supernatural source, but they're not willing to go to the source of the Bible, the true and the living God. it, it, It astonishes me how many people will read their horoscope or they'll go to a psychic reader or they'll go to a medium or they'll go to a person who doesn't know anything about anything about their future and who can help them in no way. And by the way, Babylon was the pinnacle. It was the seat of enchantment and psychic phenomenon and the occult and tapping into the powers of the deep, dark unknown. Therefore, evil will come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. Now think, think about this for as, as carefully as you can. This is the leading center of the entire world of psychics, but not one could predict their destruction by the Medes and the Persians in a single night. Isn't that interesting? And Babylon's demonic religion... Look what it says in verse 12. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You know what's happening? The prophet's being sarcastic. 
Stand now with your enchantments. Oh, your enchantments are going to save you. Oh, you don't want to embrace the historical biblical God. You don't want to embrace the God of Judah and Jerusalem. The God of the Bible makes no sense to you. Oh, okay. Stand with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries. Oh, you believe that you can magically manipulate the environment. You believe that you can cut open the chest of bulls and goats and chickens and read their entrails. You may not know this, but we've uncovered through archaeological um, research 70 volumes of tablets. Whenever they would cut open a chicken or a goat or a cow, they would read its entrails and then they would mark it on a Babylonian cuneiform. That when the intestines go this way or that way, when they're overlapped with the liver or the kidney, they, they came up with this grand scheme of how to read the entrails, the innards of dead animals. Stand now with your enchantments in the multitude of your sorceries. Do you think that they're going to help you? Do you think your magical worldview will help you? Do you think atheism and agnosticism will help you? Do you think... That so long as you can hold out the hope that there's something good and decent within humanity. And that at some point it's going to explode into a blossom. And that we're going to learn how to travel through space. And we're going to colonize the stars. And then my generation's hope will come true. Space, the final frontier. That we will make contact with the other beings that inhabit this universe and we will form a coalition. And that we, because of scientific research and because of intelligence and understanding, that we will be able to liberate ourselves from ourselves. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will be able to prevail, it says in verse 12. It's sarcasm. Maybe you can make it without God. <laughs> Keep trusting your false gods. Keep trusting them. What did we already learn in verse 40, chapter 46? They will fail you. And look what it says in verse 13. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. You understand what's happening? They went to an astrologer. They went to the person who would open up the chicken's entrails. Please tell me what, please tell me what the future holds for me. Please tell me about my wife and please tell me about my husband. Please tell me about my marriage. Please tell me if my stock portfolio is going to go to, you know, where in a handbasket. Tell me about my future. Tell me, tell me, tell me. The monthly prognosticators. Tell me about the stars. I know that the rotation of the stars are taking place. What are the invisible influences that are going to determine my future? Do you know what happens when you're involved in the occult and psychic phenomenon? You get tired quickly. I'm not just saying this from the Bible. I'm saying this from personal experience. 
When I was in the sixth grade, I began to do research on psychic phenomena and the occult. By the seventh grade, I was reading tarot cards and doing divination. By the time I was in the eighth grade, I had either begged, borrowed, or stolen every piece of psychic material literature about parapsychology, about ghosts and demons. You name it, and I would read it. And I would begin to ask and answer the question whether or not there was power in the occult. You know how I was introduced to the occult? Believe it or not. By the wife of an evangelist. That might shock you. There was a famous evangelist who lived in our city. His daughter went to school with me and I visited her at a birthday party. Her mother was from Romania. And as a joke, she said, can I read your palm? And I extended my palm and she began to tell me things about life and about the future and what the future held for me. And I don't even remember exactly what she said, but she placed a thought inside of my brain. Is it possible to know the future? Can we know the future and can we manipulate the future? And it set me on a journey that would eventually lead to Altered states of consciousness, metaphysical conferences, and then drug abuse. Eating mushrooms and LSD. Altering my state of consciousness in order to tap into the spirit world. But you know what happens when you alter your state of consciousness and you try to tap into the spirit world and you try to contact the dead? Demons sometimes really show up. You know, the Bible teaches that there is an invisible world that you can't see. But those are demons. Those aren't real. They're not, they're not, it's not your dead mother. It is not your dead father. These are demonic creatures masquerading as your loved one. And then they set you on a journey of fear and fatigue. You're weary by the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. But you know what the right answer is? There is no psychic. There is no astrologer. There is no person who can save another single person. Psychic phenomenon, ghosts, mediums, tarot card readings, they will leave you exhausted and helpless and vulnerable. I'm not saying it just from personal experience, but from what the Bible says. And look what it says in verse 14. Behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Do you know what he's saying? Even though you are the Las Vegas of psychic phenomenon. Even though every medium and every tarot card reader and every astrologer can be found right there in the capital city of Babylon. Not one. Not a single one. Will be able to tell you the night that Babylon will fall. The night that your children will be killed. The night that your daughters will be taken. The night that judgment will come. In verse 15 it says, Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored. 
your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each to his quarter. No one. Look what it says. Look at the last sentence. No one shall save you. God is in charge of the future. No person who resists and rejects God will escape the judgment of God. The Babylonians didn't escape. Their whole civilization didn't escape. And it was predicated on understanding and controlling the invisible world, the dark world, the unseen world. The occult leaders, the failed psychics, they can only give you worthless advice. And not only will they give you worthless advice, they'll charge you money for it. See, you laugh, but i got to tell you something. I used to do this. I used to do this myself. I didn't necessarily always charge money. I would go to a party and I would just charge a beer. Hey, I'll read your cards for a beer. And people would line up to the street. I never had to buy beer. But everything that I told them was a wicked, perverse evil, selfish lie. The psychic is lying. No human being can know your future. No human being has any more power than any other human being. Only God knows the future. Only God is wise. Only God is powerful. All knowing, all seeing, all powerful. The Lord God knows the destiny of every individual, of every family, of every church, of every community, of every civilization. Only God has the power to direct the future. And when it says, they shall wander each to his quarter, you know what that means? They shall continue in their error. They'll go back and they'll continue to do this. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. The Medes and the Persians will envelop the city. They will capture the city. Babylon will collapse. Their king will go away. Their people will go into bondage. And they'll still seek out the psychic, the astrologer, the medium, the diviner. Listen carefully. As long as people and nations are willing to pay for their worthless advice and their false counsel, they'll continue to give it. Not a single occult leader, not a single person can save them from their future destiny. And most particularly, the coming judgment of God. The Bible's full of warnings about those who dabble in the dark practices of the hidden, unseen world of the spirits. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, it says, Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. I was on a national television program debating a medium, and this woman was from Ireland, and she says, Well, no. The Lord God gave me this wonderful gift. I have this wonderful gift that I I can speak to the spirit word. To the dearly departed. And I said, who gave you this gift? God gave me this gift. 
Well, I'm confused. Why would God give you a gift, but then prohibit the children of Israel from exercising that gift? Because you see in Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, it says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, nor one who practices witchcraft, a soothsayer, one who interprets omens, a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. The Bible forbids it. And she said, well, you know, in the original language, it doesn't really say that. And I said, I have at least 26 different translations of the Old Testament, including the Hebrew. The prohibition isn't an affirmation in a single one of them. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you can't believe everything in the Bible. And you know what I said? But you can believe what the spirits say? And then I asked her an important question. Has a spirit being ever lied to you? And you could hear the pause. Now, they edited for the television program, but during the live taping, there was this long pause, and I could almost hear her thoughts. If I say yes then people are going to say, why should I believe anyone, anything that they say? But if I say no, I'm lying. So she decided to lie. No, spirit beings have never lied to me. Oh, really? They've always told you the truth. But here's what the Bible says. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. And look at the last line. There is no one to save you. This is a Hebraism. This could be translated. Your Savior does not exist. Now, this is important. Because remember, the Babylonians were counting on the Babylonian religion to save them. They were, they were counting on the stars to save them. They were counting on the psychics to save them. They were counting on the mediums to save them. They were counting on their culture and their language and their strength to save them. Everyone, everyone needs to be saved. And guess what? Everyone is trusting either a false source of redemption or a true source of redemption? Let me ask you a question. Does your Savior exist? Remember the song? I know my Savior lives. I serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest question do all who come to Jesus do all who trust in Jesus do all who believe in Jesus do all who come to Jesus will they be saved the answer is yes come to me all you who labor and heavy laden I'll give you rest 
He says, come to me. I, I won't reject you. I'll accept you. All who come to Jesus can be saved. In this a, a great book called They Stand Together, the, the, the letters of C.S. Lewis to Arthur Greaves, he writes this in, in, incredible note to one of his friends. Quote, C.S. Lewis says, I think one may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion which raises its head in every temptation that there's something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to, to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but which would be real delight if only we were allowed to get it. The thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can, or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us. He knows what we want, even in our vilest acts, he is long, he longs to give it to us. The truth is that evil is not a real thing at all, like God. It is simply good spoiled. That is why I say that there can be good without evil, but no evil without good. You know what the biologists mean by a parasite, an animal that lives on another animal. Evil is a parasite. It is there only because good is there for it to spoil and confuse. This is why we must be prepared to find God implacably, immovably, forbidding what may seem to us very small and trivial things. But he knows whether they are really small and trivial. How small some of the things that doctors forbid would seem to an ignoramus. What he's basically saying is, People believe in something. And it's really there. Or it's not there. Isaiah says, the false hopes, the false dreams, the false confidences, they're not really there. The only thing that you can fully and finally trust is a true and a living God who reveals himself. Isn't this an amazing book? But next week, you can read ahead, chapter 48. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bow our heads and we lift our voice. And I suspect that there's not a single person here who had, at one point or another has doubted. Are you really there? Do you really care? But Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus came, really came. He really lived. He really died on a cross. That he's not just the product of our imagination, that he's not just wishful thinking. And that if we will come to Jesus, we will experience real hope. Real life, real love, real forgiveness. Lord, I suspect that there are people who are also listening to the sound of my voice, my voice who, who've been sexually abused, oppressed. They've abused drugs or alcohol. They've abused themselves. They've abused others. And Lord, we know that even in that oppression and even in that abuse, you're willing to offer forgiveness and hope. 
Heavenly Father, we know that our abusers will be judged. But we also know that our abuse will be judged. Either on the cross of Calvary or at the judgment seat of God. So Lord, we as a people, we as a congregation come to you, Lord. Knowing that in the end you will right every wrong. You will correct every abusive circumstance. Lord, you will punish every oppressor. But Lord, we pray that you would forgive us our abuse. Lord, we pray that we could be men and women who don't oppress and take advantage of each other. Lord, we pray that in our pride and selfishness, Lord, that we would refuse to neglect one another. But rather, Lord, we would choose to love each other and protect one another. Lord, we know that we do it in an imperfect fashion and we do it in an imperfect way. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to act in a way that's honorable and decent. And again, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death. We thank you that we have hope and forgiveness and love and truth in Jesus. And Lord, for that person who has had that dark cloud of oppression and abuse that has followed them from place to place, Lord, I pray that the cloud would be lifted and that they could experience real hope, real love, real faith, real wholeness, real wellness in Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.